So James, tonight, Lord willing, we're going to get through James 3, 4, and 5. It's ambitious, but why not? I love being ambitious. Um, and where we're at, the book of James, just kind of as a, as a summary, James's main exhortation to the church is to walk the talk. If you're going to say you're a Christian, that's fine, but how does anybody know? And that should be evidenced. You know, you, you ought to be able to back up your words by your actions. And we talked about it last week, we'll talk about it again through the night, but James is not arguing that you're somehow saved by works. He's making a very, very, very strong argument that works should be demonstrating the fact that you're saved. Your work should be proving that what has already, that the work of God has taken place in your heart. They shouldn't be earning the work of God in your heart. And so tonight, um, you know, as you're reading James, it's, it's almost helpful to think of James as sort of the New Testament book of Proverbs, because James just, he's just dropping nuggets of wisdom, and they're kind of connected, but by and large, there's, just, there's a lot of just amazing passages in James that you can just take and apply and say, okay, well, this is applicable to my life right now. If you get through the book of James and you have not found something that the Lord is speaking to you about, you weren't paying attention, okay? The book of James is just full of exhortation, admonition, command. James is not maybe a particularly nice pastor, but he's a very kind pastor and that he loves you enough to tell you when you're out of line. And so he tells everybody. He's going to pretty much make sure to offend everybody by the time he gets through this book, but he's going to make a point about how what you say should be demonstrated in what you do. So he opens up, <clears throat> my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And right out of the gate, James just makes a, an argument that if you're going to step into a position of leadership in the church, if you're going to be a pastor or a teacher, that that needs to not be something that you take lightly. Uh, it needs to never be something that's just fun or a good gig, uh, or uh, something that you want to try because you failed at every other job that you ever had in life. Uh, there, there's a lot of reasons why people go into, oh, I want to be a pastor, oh, I want to serve the Lord. And James just says, you know what, you need to understand that serving the Lord is a very serious call. And it is not something that you do passively, it's something you do actively. And there's actually a stricter judgment for someone who's in a position of authority in a church. And that's a, that's a scary verse. It ought to be a scary verse. It ought to scare pastors around the world to say, God, have mercy on me. God, help me to teach your word well. Help me to teach it faithfully. Because the Lord has said through his word that pastors come under a stricter judgment. That doesn't mean they're not saved by grace, <clears throat> but it means the Lord holds them to a level of accountability that other people aren't held to. And so it's a serious role. And he's making a point, he's going to go on really all the way down through verse 12. He's specifically making a point about the evil of our words and our, and our tongue's capacity to sin. And so he's making a sort of an early on point that pastors and teachers, just by virtue of the fact that they talk so much, have greater opportunity to walk in sin by, uh, by speaking hypocrisy, by speaking half-truths, or half lies by failing to deliver the, the whole word of God. There's just a greater opportunity for sin through their words and through their example. And so he's just making a warning, hey, to the pastors and teachers out there, or to anyone who thinks they might be called to be a pastor, or to anyone who's going to you know, see this as something that they feel like the Lord might be calling them to, take it seriously. But now he's going to make a broader application to Christians everywhere. So he says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Though they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So he's using metaphors that we understand, right? A horse is what? Uh, 800, 1,200 pounds of muscle. And you put a little 3-inch, 4-inch wide piece of steel in their mouth, and you put a little 100-pound, 5-foot-tall man on top of that thing, and he can steer that horse around a track like it's nobody's business, right? And it's just this little piece of, mu little piece of metal, and he's, he's trained the horse that, you know, when I squeeze with my right knee, it means this. When I squeeze with my left knee, it means this. When I squeeze them together, it means this. It doesn't take a lot, but you can steer an awful lot of power with a little bit of metal. 
Same with a ship. And he's, he's making the point that your tongue is really the same thing. Your tongue is going to direct a lot, of a, a lot of who you are. And there's sort of the, on the front end, we think like, yeah, it's like the bit. It, it can shape, you know, shape a whole horse. Like my tongue can really do some, do some action. He says, yeah, see how great a forest a little fire kindles and the tongue is a fire. And so James is not making a point that your tongue is great for its power. He's making a point that your tongue is deadly and it's dangerous for the power that it has. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And so James makes a point here that's really important, and that is that your tongue is a destructive force. And we all understand this inherently. If I told you, tell me a time when someone paid you a just incredibly gracious compliment, you could probably come up with it in less than 10 seconds. If I told you, tell me a time somebody really hurt you with a sentence, you could probably come up with it in less than two seconds. Why? Because words are powerful, and they stick in our mind and in our heart, and we remember them. And the tongue has the capacity to be set on fire by hell, James says. He says, your tongue is capable of incredible destruction, and it has to be brought under control. But here's the problem. The tongue is, 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 you know, if the tongue is set on fire by hell, he says, then the tongue is not the, the root of the problem. The tongue is what's burning, but what's set it on fire? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 15, he said those things, Matthew 15, 18, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. Jesus said, out of the heart, your mouth is speaking. Right? So your mouth, what comes out of your mouth is really a reflection of what's already residing in your heart. So if your tongue is evil, if your tongue is damaging the people around you, if your tongue is sowing division or sowing hurt, then it's a reflection of an evil heart. And so you cannot change your tongue, but God can change your heart. And so he's making a point here, which is that if you're at a disconnect between what you say you believe and what's coming out of your mouth, you need to go back and have your heart changed. And it's the same idea when he's talking about you need to demonstrate your faith by your works. Anybody can say they believe in God, but if they don't act it out, then you have to question whether or not they actually mean it. Anybody can say that God has changed their heart, but if what's coming out of their mouth is destructive, then they need to walk it back and say, well, wait a second, has God changed my heart? And if we're in a process of we still say things that we don't want to, but we believe that God has changed our heart, then you keep growing, you keep moving forward with that. And he's going to actually elaborate that as we get in, into chapter 5. But verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conducts that his works are done in the meekness, the meekness of wisdom. And so he goes back sort of again to the teachers. Who's wise and understanding? Who's the person in a position of authority? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. James connects wisdom and faith in the same way here. If you're going to say you have faith, demonstrate it by your works. If you're going to say you have wisdom, demonstrate it by your works. And now he's going to actually give us a comprehensive understanding of how to gauge wisdom. Verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So right there, we are given the capacity to understand if in a specific situation, someone is walking in the wisdom of the world, in demonic wisdom. Okay, if you're in a situation where there's just envy and self-seeking and confusion and there's all kinds of evil things coming out of there and you're like, gosh, I don't know what's going on, but there's just like, there's no clarity here. I'm having this, you know, this, there's this conversation going on and they cannot comprehend what's being said. They are just completely obsessed with themselves. That means they are not walking in biblical wisdom. And then he gives us a counter 
and explains further in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom that is from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James gives us a contrast, a way to look at a situation and understand, is this the wisdom from God or the wisdom from men? Okay, if you're walking with a group of people in a decision, and man, it's, just, it's, it's pure, it's peaceable, there's no false motives, there's no jockeying for power, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, it's not about, hey, my way is the right way, it's full of mercy and good fruits, the fruits of the Spirit are showing up in these interactions, and it's without partiality and without hypocrisy, we're not playing favorites, we're not, we're not playing a, a double game, that's wisdom that's coming from God. And that's in just, it's such a practical but incredibly helpful understanding to have in the world. Because the world has all kinds of ideas about what wisdom is. The world gives us all kinds of spiels about what's great, what's effective, what's going to make you happy, what's going to make you satisfied, what's going to make you fulfilled. And you can find polls and data to back up any argument you want. But if you want to know if there's wisdom behind something, then look at what's coming out of it. If there's confusion in every evil thing, it is not the wisdom from God. But if it's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, then the Lord is, is giving his wisdom to that situation. Okay, And so it's, it's an incredibly effective tool. So he's, you know, And I know we jumped through three really fast. It's because I know what's coming, and I know that if I didn't get through three fast, we would never make it all the way through five. But, but he's making just these principles. Okay, You say you have wisdom, walk in it. You say the Lord has changed your heart, let it be demonstrated in what you say. Verse 4, he's continuing the idea of biblical versus demonic wisdom. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. So he says, where, do, where, does, where does contention come from? Where, where do the arguments come from? You know where they come from? They come from our selfishness. Right? Dad always used to say it takes two people to argue, which is not always 100% true because sometimes you have some person, especially in a sibling group, who is just out to win an argument. And it doesn't matter if you agree with them. They're still going to prove that you're wrong. Um, but by and large, it does take two people to argue in life. All right? And usually and an argument is I am prioritizing my rights over yours or my needs, or my intellect, or my whatever. It's about me versus you. One of us is going to walk away from this a winner, and one is going to walk away a loser, and I'm here to make sure that I walk away the winner. If nobody cared about winning, there would be no arguments. Right? And so James says, okay, where do all these contentions come from? And even within the church, they come from your selfishness. They come from your desire for pleasure. And he says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet. You're doing whatever you can to get these things, and you just can't get them. And now he offers a couple really interesting ideas in the context of praying for the things we want. He says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. How often do we want something, and we expect the Lord to give us something? And yet, if somebody said, have you prayed specifically for that? You'd say, well, I mean, not, not really, right? I'm looking, you know, I, I can't find my keys. I've looked everywhere. God knows I need my keys. I have to get to work. Have you prayed that you show you your keys? No. Right? Or, or you know, have you prayed that he'll give you, show you the keys? Yeah, I just prayed. Um, <laughs> of course I prayed. Uh, but so often, we don't have things from the Lord because we don't ask. James said in chapter 1, if you lack wisdom, ask and God will give it to you. So if you say, wow, I just, I mean, I keep tripping. I keep, I keep not having wisdom in these situations. I just need more wisdom. Well, have you asked God for wisdom? Walking around telling everybody else that you need wisdom is not really helping the situation because if you're foolish, probably everybody else already knows it, right? But have you gone to the Lord and said, God, please give me wisdom? There's something to be said through the scriptures for specific prayer. Sometimes we pray in these super broad generalities. Right? Like, God, let your will be done. Amen. Now, that's not a bad prayer. I want God's will to be done. But if I just pray that, let's say I'm going to pray that every day for a year. I get to the end of the year, how am I going to know? Do I have any kind of way to, like, 
see has God done it? Now, but if I said, God, would you please let your will be done in my relationship with this person? Or maybe even more specifically, God, would you bring this person to salvation within one year? Now, he may or may not choose to answer it. That's, that's his prerogative. But you will have the ability to say, wow, the Lord answered this prayer, or the Lord delayed answering this prayer for his own reasons. But if he chooses to answer it, you will have the privilege and the blessing of getting to have your faith strengthened by saying, wow, God answered that prayer. But he goes on, and he says there's, there's sort of a, a counter or an addition to this. He says, yet you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. There are some things that we ask God for very specifically. And God says, I am not giving that to you because that would be a waste. Right? I, w- I would be bestowing it on you and you would just squander it on your own selfishness. Christian men for hundreds of years have prayed that God would bring them beautiful wives. I'm not sure that it's always just been for the sake of, uh, God, would you please make me holy. Right? Christian men, ever since the invention of cars, have prayed that God would bring them fast cars. And they'll use it to drive to church, you know. It'd be an effective tool for ministry. Just think of all the people we could reach if we had, a, I mean, a Corvette, we could drive even faster, right? I mean, God, don't, I mean, give me something to get around, but not a minivan. God, uh, you know, I, I need to serve you. I need four tires, but I also need to be kind of sleek and preferably red, right? We ask for things. I have no interest in a Corvette for what it's worth, but anyways, we ask for things and we ask for them just because we're selfish, And James says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not realize that you're you're, you're choosing a side by what you desire? Are you desiring something for your own pleasure and benefit? Or are you desiring something for the glory of God? And if you're desiring it for your own pleasure, then you're at enmity, you're at odds with what the Lord wants to do. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? So at this point in the book, James has successfully condemned every single one of us, right? And people get obsessed over, well, you know, is James different than Paul's writings because James is arguing for salvation by works, which he's not. James is arguing that once you're saved, work should be evident in your life. But as he's pointing that out, he's also pointing out that we're pretty uh, spectacularly lame at actually letting these works live out in our lives. You know, because he tells us, uh, you got to endure temptation, uh, be swift to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Lay aside all filthiness and wickedness. Be doers of the word. Don't show partiality between rich and poor. Uh, live, out, live out your faith by your works. Demonstrate your wisdom by your works. Don't talk too much. Um, you know, ask specifically but ask for God's pleasure, not for your pleasure. At this point, how many of us are like scoring 100% here on this, if this is a test? Nobody. Nobody's, nobody's, nobody's in the running at this point. So what's he, where does he go in verse 6? But he gives more grace. And that's, in, that's really critical to understand because anytime you walk by faith and, and you're walking out your faith, it's going to push you toward Christ. If you're trying to walk... And, let, and be a doer of the word, you are going to stumble and you're going to fall short. But if you're trying to walk out your faith because you believe, okay, if, you, if you're doing works because of what God has done, then when you stumble, it does not push you into saying, wow, I need to try harder. It pushes you to say, wow, I need more grace. It pushes you not to say, wow, I've got to put more confidence in Nate Murphy. I says, I've got to put more confidence in Jesus Christ. And so, and then I think that's critical to understand the book because otherwise, if you read James real fast and you skip this verse, you think, wow, Christianity is all about just knocking out the list of things you've got to do. But no, Christianity is about realizing there are things we ought to do now that we're saved that we are going to fail at. And as we fail at them, it should push us back toward Christ. And this is a verse I heard a pastor years ago. He said, sometimes if there's a, a truth that you're trying to meditate on, it's very helpful sometimes to read it several times and each time emphasize a different word. And so I'm just, just for the sort of the, the exercise of it. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. In spite of all that, he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Who's, who's it coming from? It's coming from God the Father, the creator of the world. But he gives more grace. This isn't something we're earning. It's a gift. 
but he gives more grace. He's already given us the grace of salvation, the grace of the promise of eternity. It'd be, it, it would be totally justified in leaving us to just figure it out on our own and saying, yeah, you guys are still failures. But he gives more. And but he gives more grace. He gives more of his riches. More grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here James is quoting from the book of Proverbs. But he's going to connect, especially here in the next paragraph, he's going to connect grace and humility together. And that's important because oftentimes what we want to do is we want to receive all the grace of God but still look at least mostly awesome on our own strength. Right? We want like, man, I hope the grace of God saves me, but I hope people don't realize that I actually need the grace of God because I would like them to think that I'm still kind of cool. Right? So he's going to connect the grace of God and the humility of the recipient. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is not a verse about how to be saved. This is a verse about walking in victory. He says he gives more grace. If you've never received grace, you're not saved. If you're getting a bonus surplus, you're already in the family of God. He's talking to Christians. Okay, if you're, if you're walking in your Christian life and you are failing in all the things that James is telling you should do, then what do you need to do? You need to become humble. If you're failing in them, it's because you're proud. It's because you're selfish. It's because you think that you can do this or you think that you ought to be able to pull these things off. And really, it, it's an effort to say, I don't really need the grace of God. And so your pride and the grace of God do not coexist. So if you say, wow, I, so it's, it's really, a, it's a wonderful point. It, it's miserable, but it's glorious. To reach the point of brokenness where you say, okay, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot live up to these standards. I cannot meet these expectations that either I put on myself or other people put on myself. And so what do I need? I need the grace of God. But I haven't been receiving the grace of God because I've put so much stock in myself. So what do you do? You humble yourself in the sight of God. Right? And this is so, receiving the power of God. If you want the grace of God, we talked about this when we were in Romans, back at the beginning of the year. Romans chapter 5 talks about this. The grace of God does not equal the freedom to do whatever you want. It equals the power to not have to do the things that used to define you. Okay? So if you, the grace of God is, is equal to the power of God. If you want to receive the power of God, it will be accompanied by brokenness in your own heart. Proud people do not receive power from God. And you can say, well, yeah, but you know, it would be so humiliating to confess. Well, here's the deal. You can't be humiliated if you're already humble. Right? A humble person cannot be humiliated because to be humiliated means to be like brought low. Well, if you're humble, you're already low. You don't have any expectation that you need to keep up. Right? If you're already like not proud, then you can't get humbled. And so if you're worried about getting humiliated, it means you're walking in pride. If you're walking in pride, it means you are outside of the grace of God. It means you are not receiving the power of God, and so you will wind up living a frustrated Christian existence. So you read the book of James, and you show all this condemnation and guilt. And James says, no, no, no. Read this book, understand it, and you see it as an explanation of why you need grace. And then humble yourself in the sight of God. He will give you his grace. He will give you his power. And through his power, as he transforms your heart, you will then be able to walk in these things. You will not accomplish these things. It's not like Jesus Christ saved you, and now it's up to you to walk out in all these things for the rest of your life. It's Jesus Christ saved you, and now he wants to give you his power every second of every day to live out what he's calling you to on a, on a continual, constant, overflowing basis. And that comes through humility. The power of God works in humble people. And so James is saying, humble yourself in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. God will give you his power, but there's a brokenness that needs to happen. Verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? So here he's kind of, you feel like he's kind of jumping gears, and he kind of is, but he's also connecting it a bit. Because if you are willing to speak evil of somebody else, it means you are willing to elevate yourself to being above them. Right? Which means you are walking in pride. So, hey, you need more grace. That's awesome. You want a tip, kind of, for getting more grace? Don't speak evil of somebody else. And, and, and you're not, it's not your job to fix people. It's not your job to be a, you know, the police of who's in charge of making sure everybody's squared away here and you know, making sure everybody, which more or less means everybody lines up with my doctrine, right? Uh, and I'll be, I'll be frank just because it's, we'll get there. Um, the Lord kind of slapped me with this one this week and I had to apologize to my family because I said, um, there's a person who I've had a bad attitude about for a while and I've been speaking evil of them. And so please forgive me. Be, but... He says, you know what, it's not your place. You don't need to do this, right? Let the Lord take care of the Lord's business. You don't need to insert yourself in the role of God. Verse 13, he's going to switch gears again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so here James is making a warning, and he's not warning against having a plan. Okay? And I'm going to recognize that this verse is probably a lot harder to apply for some people than it is for me because planning ahead is not really something that weighs on my mind very much. I remember I met a guy one time. He's like, like first three minutes of the conversation. He's like, so what's your five-year plan? I was like, Bro, I don't know what I'm doing in five minutes. Like, I just, no idea. Um, but some people just, they live by the plan, right? We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to get this job. We're going to make this much money. We're going to invest it in this weight, and we're going to get this percentage ROI, and we're going to try and get it switched over from a 401k to a Roth IRA, and we're going to kind of make a transition here, and this ought, the tech stocks ought to be doing this right about the time that the steel and oil is doing this, and if we're all set, we'll retire at age 40, and then we'll start traveling to Southeast Asia for probably a decade, and then we'll switch over and kind of be a European tourist for a little while, and then we might go South America. And James is like, that's not, that's stupid, because you're going to die. Right? Like, like, like you're, not, you're not God. Okay? And he's not saying it's wrong to have a plan. But notice when he's, when he's giving a hypothetical plan here, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. That entire plan revolves around the person making the plan. Right? It's I'm doing this, I'm going here, I'm making the money. It has nothing whatsoever to do with what does the Lord want? From my life. He saved me. He, he, he redeemed me from the slavery I was in. In a very real sense, he bought me. And so, in a very real sense, he owns me, which means he's the boss. And oftentimes, what we want to do is make Jesus the Lord of our lives, but not the boss, right? Like, he's the Lord, but I still call all the shots. James is like, no, no, no. What needs to happen is your life needs, it's okay to plan. The Lord, I, I have no objections to working hard. I have no objections to investing. I have no objections to planning for retirement. I have no objections to, you know, trying to be educated and responsible in terms of money and time and energy. I think those are all wise things to do. But it's all under the banner of, what does the Lord want me to do? And also under the banner of, you know, if the Lord decided to just wipe out all my financial accounts, that's cool. Well, well I hope he doesn't. But if he does, I will have a chance to find out that the Lord is faithful, right? Uh, I forget which prophet it was, but he says, I've been young. I, think, I have no idea where it's at, but it's in, it's in the Bible. I'm positive. I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, right? And so if you lose everything, but you still got the Lord, you got everything. And so he says, make plans. That's great. God bless you. Have your, have your peppy little plan. But don't set your life on it, right? Just, just roll with, what does God want me to do? Where is God calling me? In verse 17, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is interesting because James now makes a clear, a clear understanding that there are sins of commission 
There are times when we sin because we do the wrong thing, but there are also sins of omission. There are times when we sin when we don't do the right thing. And, and what that and it's important to understand because that pushes us to understand our responsibility in the world. God says if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. That's the exact same as if you knew that what you were about to do was the wrong thing and you did it anyways. Okay, so, so the problem with this is it sometimes requires us to actually take a stand. Right? If you know there's injustice, you have a responsibility to stand up for it. Right? If you know that something is being, is being done for, for evil or for false gain, you have a responsibility to stand up for it. And sometimes that gets a little dicier because sometimes we just want to not make waves, right? It's not always comfortable. You know, in the world right now, it's not comfortable to say that abortion is murder. It's not comfortable to say sometimes that marriage is one biological man and one biological woman. And it's even more awkward because we now live in a world where we have to specify that it's a biological man and a biological woman. It's not always comfortable to say that God wrote down his word and it's truth, and anything that, tr- that goes against that is a lie. It's not always comfortable to say that when Hamas invades Israel and starts murdering babies, that that's evil. But God says, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's sin. Now, sometimes, okay, we say, well, okay, the, so there's, yeah, cover all those things. It also means if God says you need to repent to somebody and you don't, that's a sin. It also says if God needs, says you need to help this person wash the dishes and you don't, it's a sin. And so be careful. So it's, it's important that we understand it at sort of a big and small level because the Lord is interested in our lives at every level. So it's important that we'll be able to take a stand on, on the principles of policy and politics and, and global you know, the, the global maneuverings that are going on in our world, that's important. It's also important when the, world, when the Lord works in our hearts on a very small-scale basis that we are willing to listen to his Holy Spirit and walk in obedience. Chapter 5. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And so here, James is making a a couple, kind of really two points. The first is that if you're trusted in your riches, your riches are not going to save you. And the second is that if you are trying to gain your riches by abusing other people, that the Lord will take it seriously. He calls him the Lord of Sabaoth. That's not the Lord of Sabbath. It's not the Lord of rest. The word Sabaoth could translate armies or hosts. So if you are cheating people to make money, and it doesn't matter whether that's your employer by giving them a bad day's work, or your employees by not paying them what they're worth, or your government by lying about your taxes. If you are cheating people to earn money, do you know who's watching? The Lord of the armies, James says. That's not quite like little Jesus, meek and mild. You know? that, that's a little more intimidating. And James uses it intentionally because he wants us to think about if I'm supposed to let my life be a reflection of the fact that I'm saved, that should ripple through everything I do, right? That should, that should, there is no part of my life that God does not want to have control of. He wants to have control of my tongue. He wants to have control of my wisdom. He wants to have control of my sexuality. He wants to have control of my financial integrity. God wants control of everything because he created every aspect of us, right? And so James says, you know what? You put your, money in rich, you put your trust in riches, it's going to fail. You abuse people to get power or to get wealth, God is watching. Verse 7, he's going to transition again. And he's, he's coming into his conclusion. All right, so sort of as we're getting there, back up and sort of see the whole book, which is, again, James is never in this book arguing that we're saved by works. He's always, he's, what he's doing is making a very clear case that since you're saved, you ought to be walking a certain way. 
And he then goes on and clarifies further and says, you ought to be walking this way. If you're not walking this way, you need to go back to the Lord and receive more grace. You don't need to try harder. You need to actually surrender more. Okay? Therefore, he says, therefore, therefore, as we understand the things that God expects of us, the things that God is calling us to, the power that he wants to give us and the responsibility he wants us to take, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now this is really similar to, uh, let me see if I can find it, because I marked it in my Bible, to what Hosea says. In Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, he says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. So what James is saying is, okay, you understand these things. So what is it time to do? It's time to do the work. It's time to, it's time to get busy. But it's time to get busy and understand simultaneously that the Lord is going to be the one doing the work. Do the work, but the Lord's doing the work. So he says, establish your hearts. And he, he goes into a farming metaphor, okay? And so if you're considering your heart as a field, he's saying, plow it up. If your heart is hard, break it up. If your heart has rocks in it, get them out of there. If your heart has thorns in it, get them out of there. Let the seed of the word of God go deep in. But you know what? God bears the fruit. The garden does not make the fruit happen, Right? Fruit growing is a result of the garden being cultivated. And, and fruit comes at its own time. And so if you're in a, in a season of life where like, man, you just, you've had a hard heart and the Lord's working on you and he's, but gosh dang it, there's a lot of rocks in there. And he's pulling them out. Or, or you know, there's a lot of roots of bitterness that just keep, you know, you pull one out and it seems like there's three more there. You know what? The Lord, he says, and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Sometimes we have an expectation that if I do one good thing, God is obligated to then immediately bless me with something. That's not how it works. Right? It's, there's not a, I pulled one rock out of my garden, therefore I will have one extra piece of fruit. It's prepare the garden, and then the fruit will come when it's harvest time. The Lord will orchestrate the arrival of the fruit. If you want to see fruit in your life, your job is not to make fruit happen. Your job is to let the Lord plow you up. To let the Lord work in your life. To let the Lord root out the things that need to not be there. To let the Lord turn your heart into a place where fruit can grow. Your job is not to make fruit grow. It's to let the Lord work in your heart so that his fruit can grow. Jesus said, abide in me. He who abides in me bears much fruit. Bearing fruit is a result of being with the Lord. That's not something we do in order to be with the Lord. So verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's kind of serious on this, don't speak evil of one another thing. In verse 10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. He says, look, we look at the Old Testament heroes. We say, wow, that's so cool. You know, they just had such a relationship with the Lord. I want to be like that guy. He's like, you actually probably don't, truth be told. But, uh, you know, Isaiah had to walk around naked for a year. Ezekiel had to cook his bread originally over human dung, and he asked the Lord sort of for an extension, and the Lord said, tell you what, I'll be nice, cow dung. Um, you know, uh, Isaiah's eventually sawn in half according to Jewish history. Uh, these guys, the Old Testament prophets, didn't have a fun ride. But we look at their lives and we say, wow, they had a relationship with the Lord that, that I covet. And James says, you know what? Keep serving the Lord. And he'll bring the fruit. Endurance, the Lord is interested in, in your endurance. He's not interested in, in a flashy start out of the gate. right? He's just interested in, can you endure? And then, Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Be people of integrity. You shouldn't ever have to 
prove to me that you're telling the truth. Right? Now, there's a, there's a guy I know who every time he tells a story, he says, now you think I'm lying. And by the time he tells you that on the fifth story, you start to think, I bet you are. Right? Like, like if you have to tell me, now you think this is a lie, but it's not. Then after a while, I think, I wonder if he tells me that because he's telling me a lie. Right? Like, like I ought to be able to tell you a story, and it's okay if, if, it's a, if you have an exceptional life and you've had some crazy things happen. It's okay to say, like, for real. Right? True story. But if you make that, like, your defining legacy, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, if you make that your defining legacy of, like, oh, I'm always qualifying. No, I swear. I swear, man. I'm, I'm so serious. Well, after a while, you ought to just be able to say, like, no, I mean it. Here's what's going on. No, I mean it. Here's what happened. No, I mean it. Here's what I said. No, I mean it. I stand by what I said. Your integrity matters. Verse 13, he's shifting gears again. He's on a roll. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, James is going to make some points here and it's important that we understand what he's saying and also that we don't misunderstand what he's not saying. So, if you're suffering, pray. If you, it, it's the appropriate response. It's really the appropriate response in any situation. But if you're suffering, pray to the Lord for deliverance. If you're cheerful, if life is just like awesome, praise the Lord. Sing. Sing for joy. If you're sick, call for the elders. Ask, ask leaders, spiritual leaders, to pray for you. And he says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm going to defer here to Greek scholars who know Greek more than I do. But specifically in this verse, the oil, the word oil, is more of a medicinal quality. And so I think there's a practical application here of the elders should pray, and you should be willing to take practical medical steps. Okay? What do you, and, and some people look at this and say, it's, you know, the oil is a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit to bring healing in a person's life, and I'd say, absolutely. Pray for healing. The Lord still does miracles, and we'll, we're getting there in just a second. But... There's also a practical level here of pray for healing. And sometimes the Lord provides healing in very straightforward means. Sometimes he doesn't. But sometimes, pray for healing and take the pill, right? I've had surgery to fix broken parts of my body. And it wasn't a compromise of faith. It was, here's a problem. Here's the surgery that happens to fix it. We can schedule you now and we can get you in. Great. I need to fix this thing. If this doesn't get fixed... I die. You know, let's get this fixed. I'm down. Um, so, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's okay to, to, to look, to hope that medicine will help. It is not okay to put all your trust in it. In the name of the Lord. Let the elders pray for the person in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. He does not say, and every sickness will always be healed. He says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. If a sick person is praying for deliverance, the Lord will deliver them. He will raise them up. Now, sometimes it means he will raise them back up to physical health on earth. Sometimes it means he will raise them all the way up to their full and glorified, eternal, perfect state where they have no more suffering, they have no more sin, they have no more sickness. That's healing right there. Okay, And it's important that we, that we understand this because prayer is a, is a funny thing sometimes in the church where we sort of, there's kind of a, a fine line. You might say there's a spectrum. But there's sort of a fine line where we tend to deviate in one of two ways. And so it's important that we don't misunderstand it in either direction, okay? And so one way is we tell God what to do, right? God, we're believing for this. God, you're, you, 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 told, you, know, you promised us. We're believing for this. We're claiming this in Jesus' name. God's still the boss, Right? Like he tells us to pray, and so we should pray. He told us to pray boldly, and so we should pray boldly. But he also told us that he's still in charge of the ship. It's not usually good practice in the military to tell your boss what he ought to do. Right? You could make a suggestion. You could make a request. But a private does not go to a captain and say, here's what you need to do. Because that's out of line. And you just have no business doing that. But the other thing, the other extreme, is we 
are so scared of telling the Lord what to do that we don't even ask him what to do. Lord, we know, you know, you know everything's in your perfect will, and God, we just want, if it's your will, we want to ask this. But if it's not your will, that's fine too. We just want to see you glorified. We hope that you'll do whatever you want to do. And if it's your will, that'd be good. And we just we start qualifying and giving God all these escape clauses. And by the end of it, you listen to some prayers, and you're like, do you want the person to get healed? Like, like, are you actually praying for them, or are you just trying to give God so many escape clauses that he cannot exist, and you could still say your prayer got answered? Right? Some people pray prayers that have so little confidence in the Lord's ability that if God is non-existent, their prayer would still, could still, you could still look at it and be like, wow, God answered that prayer. Because you didn't ask for anything, right? All you said was basically, if there's a whim or a hunch or an inkling to do something, that something might happen, and if the other thing happens, that's fine too. That's not a prayer. That's just, that's just like rambling. And so what Scripture teaches us is pray boldly, but pray humbly. And so it's okay. Jesus said, if you tell this mountain, move and be cast into the sea, without doubting, it will be. When Jesus talks about prayer, he talks about a level of boldness that I frankly don't hear Christians pray very often. But he also, through the word, gives us examples of men who we know had that kind of boldness, and yet their prayers weren't always answered. Right? Paul tells us he had a, he had a thorn in the flesh, a, a physical ailment. He says, I prayed three times that the Lord would heal it, and the third time the Lord said, you know what, my grace is sufficient. The Lord said, I'm not going to heal it. He said, oh, Okay. Right? He was praying. I don't think Paul was, was, you know, hoping that God would heal him. I think he was praying earnestly with full confidence that God could do it. And God said, I'm not going to do it. I've got, I've got greater plans and greater, idea, and greater vision for what's going on here. And so it's important when we get into prayer that we pray confidently but humbly. And so this is where, I, you know, if someone needs healing, pray for it. And don't, don't feel the need to waffle out and, you know, God, we're, we're praying for healing, but if you don't want to heal them, that, that's, it's okay to say, Lord, right now we are asking you to heal this person physically. Lord, right now we are asking you to touch this relationship. Lord, right now we are asking you to fix this marriage so these kids can grow up with a mom and a dad. There is nothing wrong with those kinds of prayers. Pray them bold. Pray them often. Okay? But understand that if God chooses not to answer the prayer, it does not mean he has failed. It does not mean he's non-existent. It means he has plans that you do not fully comprehend. And so sometimes God does not heal people. And we struggle to understand why. And we don't always get the answer. Okay, but that's beside the point. He tells us to pray boldly. And so we're commanded to pray boldly. And so we should pray boldly. But then he also connects sickness and sin here in chapter in verse 6 confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed this is another area where we got to be careful not to uh overstate or understate what he's saying okay so here's the deal all sickness is a result of sin we have all sinned the world is cursed because sin has entered the world so the whole world is slowly winding down it's dying and as a result, our bodies decay, everything falls apart sooner or later, okay? So we are all dying, and we all get sick, in part, because it's a cursed world. So in a broad sense, all sickness is caused by sin. In a specific sense, there are sometimes specific sicknesses caused by specific sins. And we can understand this sort of, you know, in, in, a, in a straightforward sense, there are certain sins you can commit that will put you at higher risk for certain illnesses. But there are also times when the Lord will allow someone to get sick strictly to get their attention. Okay? And so, and it, so it's, this is why it's really important to not overstate or understate because some churches teach if you are sick for any reason, it's because of sin in your life. But if you read the Bible, you know it's not always the case because we have the, have the example of Job, who we're told is blameless in the sight of God. And yet the Lord still allows him to get sick. Okay, so some people say, oh no, if you're sick at all, it's because you have, a, you have a, a demon of a head cold and you just need to cast him out and you need to walk by faith. And some people say, oh, that's stupid. Of course that's not always the case. If you're sick, the first thing you should do is just either take a nap or take medicine and then go see the doctor. And then if all else fails, you could pray and ask God to heal you. 
And that's also false. There are sometimes specific sicknesses that are caused by specific sins. And sometimes the Lord will allow people to endure sickness to get their attention. But here's the deal. God is a God of clarity. Because uh, he's, he's not a God of confusion, because confusion is a mark of demonic wisdom. Okay? So if you're struggling with a sickness, it's always appropriate to say, Lord, is there something in my life that's unconfessed that I need to deal with? And if there is, the Lord will show you. If you ask for wisdom, he will give it. If you say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Is there something in my life that you're trying to get my attention over that I need to repent of? If there is, he will show you. If there is not, that's cool. Pray for healing. Roll with that. Don't, don't hold yourself in guilt over, over something that's not there. But it's okay if you're struggling with sickness to ask the Lord, Lord, are you trying to get my attention for something? And now he goes on, and, and he connects. Let me just back up then. He connects confession with healing. If there is something, if the Lord shows you, yes, in fact, there is a sin in your life that I would like you to repent of, and that's part of why you're sick, then you need to confess your sin. James is a book that's about repentance. Right? James is not about you being awesome by your own work. James is about you being broken over your sin and wanting to surrender to the Lord and let the Lord work in your life. And so he says, confess your sins one to another. So it's not always just like, oh, you know, it was just a private sin. I'm just going to confess it to the Lord. No, sometimes you need to go to a brother or a sister and say, I need you to pray for me. I need you to help hold me accountable. I need you just as a, as a tangible check-in partner to help me with this. And, and pray for my healing spiritually and physically. He goes on, he says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And now he gives what I think is sometimes the craziest and most encouraging verse in the Bible. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He says, Elijah didn't have anything that we don't have. And in fact, you can make a very strong case that we actually have more than Elijah had, because we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so he's connecting here the idea that prayer is powerful, and the power of prayer is accessible to every single one of us. Now, if we're going to look at the example of Elijah, I think this is important. Uh, and I know we're pushing our time, but that's okay. This is important. Um, Elijah is a guy who just, you can't, like, he's just sort of this firebrand, hairy guy who goes through life calling out sin. But he also has these moments where he's like whining. He's terrified of a lady, which no offense to ladies, some of them are terrifying, but he really shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have run away from her. He should have dealt with the problem. He's, he's, he's got some good points and some bad points. But when Elijah sets out to pray for something, he prays that it won't rain because he wants sinful people to turn to God. And it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prays that it will rain and it rains. But there's something important about Elijah, I think, that we need to not miss. And that is, if you go over to 1 Kings, you, don't, you can turn that if you want. 1 Kings 18.41, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. This is at the end of the drought. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the, up to the top of Carmel, that's a mountain. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there was a cloud as small as a man's hand rising up out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So, we get the, the written testimony of Elijah's prayer to end the drought. And there's a couple of things. One, it's, it's persistent. Now, six times, Elijah tells his servant, go see if the cloud is coming. That means that six times, Elijah prayed and thought, maybe God has answered my prayer. Let's check. Nope, God didn't answer it. Okay, let's try it again. Go see if God answered it this time. Nope, God didn't answer it. Okay, let's try it again. He does that six times. Now, at which point, if you're Elijah, or if you're us, you start thinking, I guess it's just not the will of the Lord, right? 
I guess the Lord just doesn't want it to rain. Elijah's, he's, he's praying persistently. He is praying until he gets an answer from God. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah is praying persistently. He's praying specifically. He's praying for the rain. It isn't, hey, God, bless the people. Give them all a great day in Jesus' name. It's send the rain. End the drought. It's also surrendered to God's will. Right? Elijah, as far as we can tell, is not demanding, oh, God, you, need to say, you, you, you know, I'm claiming, I'm claiming rain in Jesus' name. How come you, you, you failed me, God? You didn't bring it on the first try. Elijah is able to pray boldly for rain. But he's also willing to pray humbly in that God says, no, not right now. And he says, okay, I'll try it again. Not yet. Try it again. Not yet. Try it again. Not yet. Because prayer is not about making God do what we want. Prayer is about aligning ourselves with the will of God. God has a plan. Okay? He tells us to pray. He already knows what's going to happen. So why do we pray? Because he wants our will to come under his will. And if you pray earnestly and fervently for the things of God, guess what happens? God starts to shift your heart. Okay, Jesus told us to pray that the Lord would send harvesters into the field. He would send people to reach the lost. If you start praying for God to send people to reach the lost, you know what the Lord's going to do? He's going to start orienting your heart to want to reach the lost. If you start praying for relationships to get healed, you know what he's going to do? He's going to start praying. He's going to start orienting your heart to desire to take the necessary steps to help relationships get healed. If you start praying for opportunities to share the truth, he's going to start getting you positioned where you'll have opportunities to share the truth. Prayer isn't about making God do something. It's about aligning our will with what he already wants to do. And so we're encouraged by the character of Elijah. Pray hard. Pray boldly. Pray humbly. Pray persistently. And brethren, he says, verse 19, as we're wrapping up, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So if somebody's wandering, if you're backsliding right now, if you're like, you know, that serving the Lord is kind of lame, or you just, you, maybe you had an encounter with the Lord as a younger person, and now it's just like, this is not my thing. I'm here, you know, uh, there's a pastor at Maine. He says, there's a lot of teenagers in my church with drug problems. They got drugged to church by their parents, and they're serving time. If you got a drug problem because you got drugged to church, uh, come back, right? Come back. There's nothing at the end of running away from the Lord. There's nothing there. Come back to the Lord. Turn from your sins. And, and there's an encouragement to those of us who might have an opportunity to turn somebody back. Hey, you, can, you, you get to save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And he's not saying that if you save somebody, that knocks out some of your sins. Okay, he's not, he's not saying that because Jesus Christ paid for your sins. But if, if you get to be a part of somebody's story where, wow, all, my sins, all their sins were lined up against them because they were walking in self-righteousness, and now God just forgave all those because they, they repented, isn't that just cool? You could be a part of the, of the mechanism. You could be a piece of the machine that God wants to use to wipe out somebody's sins. You didn't heal them. You didn't forgive them. But God says, hey, I'm doing this. You want to you join the party, right? So, so that's James. Walk what you believe. Walk it out. As you walk it out, what do you do? You stumble. So what do you do? You become humble. As you become humble, God gives you more grace. The more grace you have, the more power you receive. The more power you receive, the more capable you are of walking in what God has called you to do. Right? James, James is not about us doing our thing. James is not about us striving or us earning our salvation. James is about we need the Lord. James is about we need the grace of God. We need to walk according to the law of liberty, like he said last week. Right? It's, it's a profound book, but it all ties back in to the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. He's very real, and that should change every aspect of our lives. So Lord, we thank you for the book of James and the profound truths that are in there. God, we do not want to take this book lightly. We do not want to hear it and then walk away unchanged. We want to let you work in our hearts. So God, I pray right now that if, if there are sins that need to be confessed, 
If there is uh, self-righteousness or slander of gossip or, or evil speaking or falsehood or whatever it is, God, if there, if there are sins in this room that need to be confessed, that we would do that, that you would, you would break our hearts, not for the sake of breaking them, but for the sake of healing them, for the sake of then pouring out your grace to heal the brokenness. God, we do not want to put our confidence in ourselves. We want to see you work. We want to be fully reliant upon you. We want everything we do to be impacted by the fact that Jesus Christ is real, that he came to earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, and in his holiness and in his death paid the penalty for all of our sins. And Lord, we want that truth to impact us, to change us, to drive us. And so have your way with us, God. Go before us. Fill us up. Teach us. Guide us and lead us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Priest, that we pray. Amen.